Well, good morning, everyone. Glad to be with you here this morning if I haven't had the chance to meet you. My name is John. I get to serve as the lead pastor here at Elmwood. Last week, I promised that there would be more pictures of our kitchen renovation, and I'm going to make good on those promises. You're going to have to imagine with me a little bit here, um, because there's still one aspect that we were not able to finish. We don't have a backsplash yet, so you're just going to have to imagine a beautiful backsplash that doesn't exist here with these grody brown walls that are there. But anyways, here's a picture of how the kitchen looked before, and here's a picture of how the kitchen looks now. So... Some can lighting in there, some new uh, cabinets and whatnot, new countertops, new floor. Uh, so ignore the uh, grossness of that uh, empty backsplash area. It'll be there, but I couldn't make you wait another month until we get it installed to uh, have pictures because I promised I would give you pictures. So that's how things are going. So I think we're pretty much, pretty much done, and that feels uh, really good to be at the end of that large, large project. Well, we're going to have some fun today with Psalm 82. Psalm 82, uh, when I looked at uh, the message schedule and saw that this was going to be on for this morning, because for the month of August, we're taking uh, the the passage from the lectionary that we uh, use to base our pastoral prayer off of, we're also going to be teaching to that same psalm. And when I saw that Psalm 82 was one of those songs that I would not only have to uh, pray through, but also preach through, uh, my blood pressure rose a few ticks, as I'm sure you can imagine, because this is a hard psalm. This is a confusing psalm. There's things about this that just uh, sort of boggle our minds as good Bible-believing Christians, uh, reading the Old Testament, hearing about the existence of other gods, and we think, What in the world is happening? And we either ignore this or we're ashamed of it or any of those things, but uh, we're going to talk about it today. Uh, We here at Elmwood, we believe, if you've been around here for any length of time, you know this, uh, we are not afraid of hard passages in the Bible. And that's because we believe that every single portion of the Bible, including the stuff that's difficult, that makes us uncomfortable, that rubs us the wrong way culturally, the things that we don't understand, uh, we're not afraid of those things. They don't make us weak in the knees because we believe that every single part of God's word is given to us for our good and for our benefit and even for our enjoyment. And so we come to passages like this, we're not afraid of it. Uh, We don't come with trepidation. We're not embarrassed of a passage like this, sort of ashamed that, oh, this is in the Bible and we gotta pretend it doesn't exist. We don't come with that posture. We come with a posture of expectation and anticipation saying, okay, God, you've given this to us for our good and for your glory and for our enjoyment of you. And so what does this passage teach us about you that we need to see? And so we come with expectation to even a passage like this. So as we look at Psalm 82, uh, I'm going to ask two things of you this morning, okay? Number one, I'm going to ask you, uh, please be unreasonably gracious with me. You are always very gracious with me, but please, especially with a passage like this, uh, be unreasonably gracious with me, okay? None of you envy my job today to talk about this passage, so just be gracious with me. Uh, And number two, please be unusually attentive, okay? What I don't want is for us to talk about some things that uh, are are somewhat unusual for us in our sort of modern post-Jesus Uh, this side of the cross context, I don't want for us to start talking about things and then have you check out and then have you check back in at a different point and leave here a heretic, okay? So we're gonna try and avoid that as much as we can. So we just need to agree that we are all in this together today, okay? We're all in it together. Let's talk about Psalm 82. 
Let's have some fun. But before we do that, let me pray for us, and uh, then we will look at God's word. God, we do believe that you have inspired every part of your word for our enjoyment and for our good, and so we come before you today with a, a posture of humility, begging you that you would help us to see and understand what is in this passage and helping us to see you more clearly. God, we know that a passage like this is uh, somewhat confusing, it's challenging, it, it, it makes us in some ways uncomfortable, and so Lord, we ask for the presence of your Holy Spirit to be active and working, especially right now in these moments here today. We desire to understand this psalm for what it is, to come to it on its own terms, and we desire to see how this psalm leads us to Jesus because we believe it does. And so help us to understand this psalm, help us to see Jesus, and leave here uh, with a renewed sense of trust and hope in him today. We pray all this in his name and all God's people said. Amen. Well, in the late 70s, a man named Brian Dalrymple, along with a few of his colleagues, were the pioneers of some new forensic science discoveries. And what they figured out was that if you use a certain uh, spectrum of light, if you use certain lasers and then certain goggles to help filter uh, those lasers, uh, it would cause the inherent fluorescence of a fingerprint to glow. So you may have seen images of, you know, in, in CSI shows or movies of the person with the, you know, the special looks like a UV black light and they've got the orange glasses on. Uh, that helps actually cause things that we can't normally see with our eyes to fluoresce or to sort of jump off the page to us, jump, jump out at us, because we use uh, that sort of that light filter. As you can imagine, this kind of technology revolutionized the world of forensic science, and it's been discovered since then that different wavelengths of light help certain things to sort of fluoresce and to glow under conditions where they would not be uh, normally visible to the naked eye. So what they do is they reveal a hidden realm, as it were. There's things that are right in front of us that we can't actually see until we are given help to be able to see it. Now, my guess is that pretty much none of us have ever used one of these official uh, forensic black light things, uh, but we pretty much, all of us, have been in the presence of a black light. You know, the like purple fluorescent tube where you turn off all the ambient lights, you take that away, you filter that light out, and you turn on a black light, and all of a sudden it's like, oh, your teeth are bright green, and all the colors are weird, and you can see, like if you got stains on your shirt, it's like, boy, those pop out. Okay, so you can see things that are not visible to the naked eye. And so both of these are just an illustration of something that we all know to be true, that there are things around us in the physical material world that exist that we cannot see with our naked eye. We need help to be able to see it. And uh, what I'm going to suggest this morning is that the same exact thing is true in the spiritual realm as well, that there is an aspect of God's creation that is a spiritual unseen realm that God has created, and we can't see it with our naked eyes unless God pulls back the curtains or gives us some way of seeing or understanding what's there. And so uh, I'm going to submit to you this morning that Psalm 82 is something like a black light to the divine realm. And so what I want to do today is I want to just, first of all, recognize that in order to understand anything about this psalm, <laughs> to, to understand this psalm for what it is and to not make it say something it's not saying, 
to make any sense of the psalm, what we have to do first is we got to just sort of turn on our black light and spend some time peering into the divine realm. And in doing so, what I want to do is just sort of help us to see a framework for what the Old Testament and what the uh, Psalm 82 in particular, what it says to us about the divine realm that we cannot see with our physical eyes unless God helps us. But in Psalm 82, God does help us. And so we're going to look at the psalm and we're going to make a number of observations about the divine realm. So I'm going to ask you to hang with me on this, okay? We're going to uh, make a number of observations. There's a really helpful book called The Unseen Realm by a scholar named Michael Heiser. This is one of the best books on this subject. Super helpful, very comprehensive. So if you're like a super Bible nerd and you want to read this, this is Matt's book, so I'll just give it to you. So if you want to come see me after the gathering, I'll just hand it off to you and he'll get it back later. But uh, we're just going to sort of summarize what we see about the spiritual, divine, unseen realm from the Old Testament and make some observations, okay? So the first observation that we can make is that Yahweh is the creator of all things, visible and invisible. Genesis 1 tells us that in the beginning, God, who we later will learn by his covenant name, Yahweh, he is the creator of all things. So he created everything in the material world that we see around us. He created everything in the divine, spiritual, unseen realm that we cannot see with our eyes, and he created everything that inhabits all of those realms, physical and immaterial. He created all of it. So Yahweh is the creator of all things visible and invisible. The second thing that we see from the Old Testament is this, that Yahweh is king of all gods. Yahweh is king of all gods, meaning... He's not only the creator and the originator of all things, visible and invisible, he is the unmatched and the unrivaled king of all gods. He is the unmatched and unrivaled king over his creation. There is nothing, there is no one like him. Everything that is in existence is contingent upon him, meaning is completely and wholly dependent upon him for its existence in the first place and uh, dependent upon him to sustain its existence at all. So he is the creator and the sustainer of all things. He is the unmatched, unrivaled king over creation, which means that there is no cosmic battle that's taking place right now. There is no cosmic war between the forces of good and the forces of evil where there's Yahweh against the other gods or these other spiritual beings And so we're just sort of waiting here to see how it's all going to turn out in the end because it's kind of a coin flip. That's not at all what we see. The picture that's given to us by the Bible is that Yahweh is the king over creation. He's the unmatched, unrivaled king of all gods. Now, we got to pause here for a moment because we need to deal with the elephant in the room. And that is that this passage talks about other gods, talks about the existence of other gods, okay? And in the English translation, uh, many of our English translations, like the NIV, puts, you know, gods, lowercase g, in quotation marks. Um, what I want to do is just sort of help us think about this, okay? Because this makes us uncomfortable because we ask ourselves the question, well, okay, don't we believe that there is one God? And of course, the answer to that is yes, and it's a little bit more complicated than that. Hang with me, I promise, this is going somewhere. I'm going to use a Hebrew word to help us sort of wrap our minds around this. The Hebrew word is Elohim. Everyone say Elohim. Elohim. Okay, this is a Hebrew word that is a category word 
that means, it could be translated God with a capital G, referring to Yahweh. It could be translated God or gods with a lowercase g. Or it could just be translated spiritual beings or spiritual being. So this word Elohim is the word that's translated in the Old Testament as gods. And it's a word that is a sort of category word meaning spiritual being. And depending on what the context is, depending on how the word is being used, that's what tells us what spiritual being it's referring to. So there are thousands of times in the Old Testament where this word Elohim refers to Yahweh. There are also numerous times where this refers to other uh, spiritual beings. So Yahweh is called an Elohim and other spiritual beings are called Elohim. So for example, the gods of other nations are called by the title Elohim. There's other places where uh, angels or divine messengers are called the term Elohim. When uh, Saul goes to the medium or the witch in Endor and he asks her to call up the spirit of the deceased Samuel, the word that that uh, passage uses is that Samuel's Elohim came up. So it can refer to uh, Yahweh, it can refer to other divine spiritual beings, it can refer to angels, it can refer to uh, just sort of generally spirits, but this is a broad word that is translated gods or God or spiritual beings depending on how it's being used, okay? So in the, in the Old Testament, this word is used to describe other gods, other spiritual beings besides Yahweh. Now here's what we need to understand. This is the most important part of this is that there is never a point where this word Elohim is used to describe another spiritual being who is anything like Yahweh. Never is this word used to describe a spiritual being who is in any way a rival of Yahweh. No, in fact, what we see is the opposite. We see passages like this from Exodus, where after Yahweh releases his people out of Egypt, Moses and Miriam sing this song. They say, who among the gods is like you, Yahweh? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders? We see passages like Psalm 97 where it says, for you, Yahweh, are the most high over all the earth, for you are exalted far above all gods. So the Old Testament does have a category for spiritual beings And the label, the title, or the name that's used for those spiritual beings is gods. So in the categories of the Old Testament, there is Yahweh and there are other gods, except those other gods are categorically different than Yahweh. He is the unmatched, the unrivaled king of all gods. We come to the New Testament, and we see that this language of gods has been sort of, uh, it's been given fresh language. So for example, we read in Uh, The book of Ephesians, where Paul says, Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, the authorities, the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. So in the Old Testament and New Testament, the writers assume that there there are other spiritual beings in existence besides Yahweh. And it gives them the title Elohim, or it gives them the title of God's. It does not mean that we are polytheistic, that we mean that there's multiple gods. What it means is that there is one God who is king over all creation, who is the unmatched, unrivaled king of all gods, and then there's these other lowercase g gods that you can give the title God sort of as a joke. 
to say, oh, you call yourself a god? No, 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 you're not even in the same category. And so this is what the Old Testament lays out for us. So what we see here is that Yahweh is the creator of all things, visible and invisible. Yahweh is the king of all gods. There is none like him. He's the unmatched king of creation. And Yahweh, what Psalm 82 tells us, has delegated some of his authority to other spiritual beings. This is where we get to, uh, in our modern context, we get weirded out by this. This, this makes us really uncomfortable because we don't have categories for this kind of thing. But what Psalm 82 tells us is that Yahweh has delegated some of his authority to these other divine spiritual beings. Now, the way that that works its way out, we're not exactly sure. I'm not going to tell you exactly how that looks, how that works. But what seems clear and what most scholars and commentators believe is that in verse 6 where Yahweh says, I said, you are God's you are all sons of the Most High, that that is describing a kind of commissioning. Yahweh has installed these other spiritual beings with a purpose, and that purpose, we're told, I believe in verse three, defend the weak and the fatherless, uphold the cause of the poor and the oppressed, rescue the weak and the needy, deliver them from the hand of the wicked. So these other gods, these other spiritual beings, are given, in some way, God's authority to enact his justice, to enact his righteousness in the world. So they've been given this authority, but then what we see also is that the gods have misused that authority. That's what Psalm 82 is all about. These divine spiritual beings, who the Old Testament gives the, refers to with the title of gods, they've misused that authority. So in verse two, Yahweh says, how long will you defend the unjust and show partiality to the wicked? They've taken this good gift of authority that God has given them and they've twisted it, they've distorted it and used it for unjust things, for the cause of injustice instead of for the cause of upholding the justice and the righteousness of Yahweh. So the gods have misused the authority given to them. Therefore, this is the last observation, Yahweh will stand in judgment over the gods. Verse one, God presides in the great assembly. He renders judgment among the gods. Notice that there is no feeling here that Yahweh is any way equal with these other gods, with these other divine spiritual beings. No, Yahweh stands in judgment over them. Yahweh presides over them in judgment. They are accountable to him. That's the picture we get here. Yahweh will stand in judgment over the gods. They are not peers. They are not equal with him. Equal with him. He is the unmatched, unrivaled king of creation. So this is the picture that we get from the Old Testament and from Psalm 82 about the spiritual sort of unseen realm. Okay, I know this makes some of us squirm in our seats a bit, and I get that, and that's okay. And also, we have to be willing to let the Bible tell us what we ought to believe is true. We need to let the Bible shape the way that we think and shape the categories we have. And sometimes it's messy. Sometimes it's uncomfortable. Um, but these are the categories. This is the framework for the divine realm that we see in the Old Testament and in Psalm 82. So how are we doing? Shake it out a little bit, okay? Um, If you are a 
Bible nerd, you're like eating this stuff up and for the rest of us, we're asking ourselves the question, okay, and what difference in the world does this make for anything in my life? Who cares? If we understand the intricacies of the, you know, the divine spiritual realm that we can't see, who in the world cares? So to understand this psalm, we have to not only sort of just look at and have a framework for understanding how the Old Testament talks about the spiritual realm, but also we have to see this psalm in its context. Now, it's easy for us to view the book of Psalms sort of as a random compilation of songs and prayers, you know, like an ancient mixtape. And it's like, you just pull any one of them out, and it's like, wow, you know, Psalm 23, that's so wonderful. You know, Psalm this or Psalm that, wow, it's so great. And that's true. They, they do, in some ways, stand on their own. And the book of Psalms is purposefully arranged. And sometimes, the way that the book of Psalms, with the themes that run through a sort of set of Psalms, sometimes the arrangement of those Psalms makes all the difference. And with Psalm 82, I'm going to try and uh, convince you of that, Okay. So I want to just ask you to listen. I'm going to just read from the Psalms surrounding Psalm 82. And just listen. And there's going to be a quiz at the end. So pay attention. Psalm 79. O God, the nations have invaded your inheritance. They have defiled your holy temple. They have reduced Jerusalem to rubble. They have left the dead bodies of your servants as food for the birds of the sky, the flesh of your own people for the animals of the wild. They've poured out blood like water around Jerusalem and there is no one to bury the dead. We are objects of contempt to our neighbors, of scorn and derision to those around us. How long, Lord? Will you be angry forever? How long will your jealousy burn like fire? Pour out your wrath on the nations that do not acknowledge you, on the kingdoms that do not call on your name, for they have devoured Jacob and devastated his homeland. Psalm 80. Hear us, shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock. Your vine is cut down, it is burned with fire. At your rebuke, your people perish. Let your hand rest on the man at your right hand, the son of man you have raised up for yourself. Then we will not turn away from you. Revive us and we will call on your name. Restore us, Lord God Almighty. Make your face shine on us that we may be saved. Psalm 81. Hear me, my people, and I will warn you. If you would only listen to me, Israel. But my people would not listen to me. Israel would not submit to me. So I gave them over to their stubborn hearts to follow their own devices. If my people would only listen to me, if Israel would only follow my ways, how quickly I would subdue their enemies and turn my hand against their foes. Psalm 83. O God, do not remain silent. Do not turn a deaf ear. Do not stand aloof, O God. See how your enemies growl, how your foes rear their heads. With cunning they conspire against your people. They plot against those you cherish. Come, they say, let us destroy them as a nation so that Israel's name is remembered no more. May they ever be ashamed and dismayed. May they perish in disgrace. Let them know that you, whose name is Yahweh, that you alone are most high over all the earth. 
So those are the Psalms surrounding Psalm 82. What's the historical events or the theme that you see or hear running through those Psalms? Yeah, God's people going into exile. This helps us understand Psalm 82. It's sort of stuck right in here in the middle of all these Psalms that are Psalms crying out for God to bring deliverance to his people. Saying, God, will you be angry with us forever? God, restore us. Bring us back. This also helps, under, helps you understand why you come to Psalm 84. And the psalmist cries out, how lovely is your dwelling place, Lord Almighty. My soul yearns, even faints for the courts of the Lord, and my heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. They're in exile. Their temple has been destroyed. They've been ravaged as a people by their enemies. And this psalm shows them crying out, saying, oh God, how lovely is your dwelling place. I long to be there. So the arrangement of the psalms makes a difference for how we understand them. So Psalm 82 Stuck right in here in the middle of all this, Psalm 82 is meant to be understood in the context of God's people being handed over to their enemies and going into exile. Now, think about this from the perspective of an Israelite person. In the ancient world, every nation, every people had their gods. Again, we've said this. Israel has Yahweh, who is the king of all gods, the other nations, the Assyrians and the Babylonians and the Egyptians and the Philistines and all the nations around them, yes, they had their gods too, who were nothing compared to Yahweh, but they all had their gods. Now imagine that you were the people of Israel and you are going around claiming, we don't just have a God, lowercase g, we have the God, uppercase g. He is the king of creation. He's not just the deity of this sort of local area. He is the God of all the earth. In the ancient world, the military success of your nation and the general prosperity of your nation was dependent upon the strength of your gods. And so imagine the Israelite people saying, we have the God of all creation. And we're in exile our enemies and their gods are triumphing over us. Our God looks impotent. He looks weak. He looks absent. That's what's going through the mind of an Israelite person. And that's why Psalm 82 is stuck here. Psalm 82 is not a word of judgment on the people for their sin that led them into exile. What Psalm 82 is, is a word of hope for those people who are in exile, who are wondering who are questioning, is our God actually all, all that? Is our God powerful enough to deliver us? And Psalm 82 says, Yahweh sits in judgment over the gods. Yahweh presides. There is no God like him. He will bring his judgment. He will bring his justice on the gods. And so this is the context that they are living in. God's people are living in a hostile environment where it looks like their God is powerless or absent or both. Have you ever felt anything like that? Have you ever felt maybe in your school or your work environment or maybe even in your neighborhood, maybe even your own home, in your family? You may feel like I'm surrounded by people who are hostile towards my faith in Christ. 
Have you ever looked around the world and felt like, you know, it looks like darkness and the powers of evil have the upper hand. It looks like God is either absent or he's too powerless to do anything about the brokenness and the injustice and the evil that we see around us. It looks like God is absent. So we find ourselves in a very similar situation to what they found themselves in exile, and this word of hope for them is also a word of hope for us as well. The word of hope is this, Yahweh sits in judgment over the gods. Yahweh, the unmatched, unrivaled king of creation, he sits in authority over the powers of darkness. Now one day we will see that fully realized, fully expressed in God's world the way that it ought to be. But until then, we don't sit here and and sort of wonder how it's going to turn out because we have a promise, because we have a guarantee, we have a down payment, which is the person and the work of Jesus. So listen to what Paul says in the book of Colossians. Paul writes this, he says, the Son, that is Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authority, all things have been created through him and for him. So Jesus is the unmatched, unrivaled king over creation. And the good news that Psalm 82 leads us towards is that in Jesus, God himself took on human flesh and accompanied us in our humanity. What God did for us in Jesus is he took on human flesh and was subject to the powers of darkness and evil. And it looked like, as Jesus went to the cross, it looked like darkness had won. Jesus submitted himself to the powers of darkness. Think about this. In in the book of John, this is interesting. Jesus, at the Last Supper, washes his disciples' feet. They eat the meal together. And then the text says that Satan entered Judas and that Judas went out and betrayed Jesus. I don't know how to understand that any other way than there is some satanic, demonic influence happening there that would lead someone to betray the Son of God. Jesus is then handed over to Pilate. And Pilate says, I can't find anything that this guy's done wrong. He's done nothing wrong. I'm going to release Barabbas to you. And they say, no, crucify him. Give us Barabbas. We want you to crucify Jesus. And so Pilate, for political gain, has Jesus unjustly executed as a criminal. He did it so that there would not be a riot in his city during the festival of Passover. So he distorted, he twisted the mechanisms of justice and Jesus was treated unjustly and executed as a criminal. He's taken to be beaten and flogged and there's all these soldiers who are bowing down before him and they put a purple robe on him and they put this crown of thorns, thorns which is all just mocking him. And they bow down and they pay homage to him and they, they, they mock him, they spit in his face, they hit him, they beat him with sticks, and then he's taken and he's executed in the most brutal, inhumane, and humiliating way that was invented until that time. I think what Psalm 82 would have us see is that when Judas betrays Jesus, that when Pilate distorts 
justice, for political gain. That when the soldiers mock Jesus, that when the innocent one suffers and dies, there's more going on than meets the eye. What I think Psalm 82 would have us see is that in all of these things, the powers of darkness are raging against Yahweh and his good creation. Again, I don't claim to understand how all this works. Please don't hear me saying that whenever you see injustice happening or whenever you see evil or darkness that there's some weird sort of like, there's a demon behind every rock. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not saying that. Uh, I, I'm, I'm just saying there's probably more happening than what we think there is happening. And I don't know exactly how all that fits together. Still need a lot of time to think and sort of process that. But I think what Psalm 82 would have us see is that this is a picture of, in the execution of Jesus, this is the clearest example of the forces of darkness, of those divine spiritual beings who are misusing their authority, who are called gods in the Old Testament, raging against Yahweh and against his anointed one. And so Jesus goes to the cross And as Jesus hangs on the cross, it looks by every appearance as though darkness had won. It looks as though the powers of darkness were stronger than Yahweh. And what's so beautiful and mysterious about the cross is that it was the very moment when Jesus was shamed publicly, when he was humiliated, when he was subjected to the the full weight of the powers of darkness, it was that moment that God used to break the powers of darkness. So listen to what Paul says later in the book of Colossians. He says, when you were dead in your sins, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He's taken it away, nailing it to the cross. Having disarmed the powers and the authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. So the moment when it looked like darkness had won, that's the exact moment when God, through Jesus, actually won. So the gods, these divine spiritual beings, these forces of evil that are raging against Yahweh, that are raging against God, they do their worst. They bring everything they've got. And as Jesus hangs on the cross... He's the recipient of, he receives the full weight of the fury of these spiritual beings who have rebelled against Yahweh, who hate him, who hate his good creation. He sits under the full weight of that. And it looked like he was, it looked like God's plans had been derailed. It looked like God's plans had gone off the tracks. It looked like God was absent. It looked like God was Impotence, God was powerless to do anything about it, and yet it was the very humiliation that Jesus experienced at the cross that itself humiliated the powers of darkness. Because on the third day, what happened? Jesus rose from the grave. And so it's like Jesus is hanging there on the cross, and all the powers of the spiritual forces are thrown at him. And in a way, they exhausted themselves. They did their worst. They brought everything they had, And Jesus rose again on the third day, demonstrating, proving, I have authority over life. I have authority over death. I have authority over every spiritual being. Your power is nothing. You can do your worst and it is nothing. And so he demonstrates, Jesus proved that he is the unmatched, unrivaled king over creation and he destroyed the powers 
of sin and death and evil and all the demonic, satanic, spiritual forces that are somehow, in some way, operative out there in the world. And so Jesus has done that for us, which is indeed good news. This is good news for us because apart from the divine intervention of God, the Bible tells us the difficult news that every single one of us is enslaved to the powers of evil and darkness. We have, by nature and by choice, we have rebelled against God. And therefore, we deserve the same end, the same fate that the gods get in Psalm 82. Yahweh sits in judgment over them. We get the same fate as the spiritual beings, as these powers here were Jesus triumphed over them, made a public spectacle of them. That is our fate apart from the work of Christ. And the good news is that in Jesus, through faith in Christ, his victory over those forces of evil is credited to us. We obviously do nothing to beat back the forces of darkness. That's not our job. That's God's job. But if we are in him, what what it means is that the power of sin And the power of evil, the power of darkness that had enslaved us, that power is now broken. And we can live freely in newness of life because of that. So Jesus, in a way, is the answer to the prayer of Psalm 82. Psalm 82 is a baffling, confusing, category, muddling, muddying psalm. And yet if we come to it on its own terms and as we hear what it says and we let it lead us to Jesus... We see that even Psalm 82, this this thing that's so confusing, it's filled with hope and good news for us because of what Jesus has done. And so I hope that this morning as we have talked about this passage that you have uh, been convinced that even a passage like Psalm 82, there's goodness and there's benefit even in a passage like that for us. And Jesus' triumph over the forces of evil, over the powers of darkness, is not just good news sort of broadly for everyone. It's not just sort of broadly available Although that's true, it's good news not just broadly, it's good news for each and every single one of us. Because those of us who have trusted Christ, who have given our allegiance to him, who view him, who worship him as the king of all gods, the power of evil and the power of darkness has been broken over us and so we can live freely. And there's no more fitting way for us to respond to that message than to come to the communion table and to receive the broken body and the shed blood of Christ, which is the very way that God used to break the power of sin and evil over us. So as we come to the communion table today, I want to just invite you to take a few moments and uh, meditate on what you've heard and come to the Lord today with a heart filled with gratitude for what he's done for us in Christ. And then we get to receive communion. So would you take a few moments of silent confession before we come to the Lord's